Hello and welcome to episode 4 of God in Film, where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm freelance filmmaker and occasional seamstress Giles Goff. And I'm YouTuber and Lego man brought to life, Phil Coleman. And during this period of lockdown, we'll be trying to stave off the desire to run through the streets in our pants by sticking our film geek hazmat suits on to analyse the faith parallels in the 2016 sci-fi film Arrival, directed by Denis Villeneuve. We'll be looking at the idea of communicating with a non-linear being, predestination versus free will, and the importance of linguistics in translation and how it can affect society. This episode will discuss all aspects of the film, which relies heavily on a big twist at the end. So this is your warning for spoilers. Phil, what did you think of this film? I absolutely loved the idea of precognitive scenes coming mm-hmm. through all the time. And, yeah. and I also thought that the aliens themselves just the design of it and the the atmosphere around them oh it just there was something about it that was just so otherworldly and mysterious and ethereal mm. and i loved it i yeah. thought it was a really great piece of cinema i love the fact that when you watch it twice you're seeing two different films you're watching it for the first time thinking you're looking at flashbacks when in fact it's flash forwards it's dealing with linguistics it's dealing with predeterminism it is dealing with like society the ability to communicate I thought it was absolutely fascinating and I am really looking forward to seeing what facts you've got for us. It is a 2016 American science fiction film directed by Denis Villeneuve and written by Eric Heisera. It's based on the 1998 short story Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. It stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker. The film follows a linguist enlisted by the United States Army to discover how to communicate with extraterrestrial aliens who have arrived on Earth before tensions lead to war. It received eight nominations at the 89th Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay, and it won for Best Sound Editing. It also received Golden Globe nominations for Best Actress and Best Original Score, amongst other nominations and wins. Dirty Sci-Fi is what director Denis Villeneuve and cinematographer Bradford Young called the look they created for Arrival. Villeneuve wanted it to feel like this was happening on a bad Tuesday morning, mm-hmm. like when you were a kid on the school bus on a rainy day and you dream whilst looking out the window at the clouds, which I completely understand yeah. that sort of that aesthetic. Like, having been on many school buses <laughs> on very bad days in Warrington, it's, it's, I completely get it. It's really good because the visual style is consistent the entire way through. You've got that really muted colour palette and the things that jump out at you are the orangeness of the, the hazmat suits. And beyond yeah. that, everything is these sort of very dark, greyish kind of colour palette going all the way through. Sort of almost like matte painting, almost like Renaissance style. Yeah. And I just love that. So director Denis Villeneuve, and the screenwriter, created a fully functioning visual alien language. The teams managed to create a logogram bible, which included over 100 different completely operative logograms, 71 of which are actually featured in the movie. In writing the story, Ted Chiang had in mind the following quote of the great physicist Albert Einstein, the distinction between the past, present and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Fucking Einstein. Man's just flexing with all that knowledge. You know I, mean, I mean, I also kind of wish that he'd tell the HMRC that, you know, like, no, <laughs> I could get it in before 31st of January. But of course, time is just a construct <laughs> and past, present and future. They're really just man-made ideas. Who knows? I haven't already submitted it. <laughs> <in the future. laughs> The reason that the ships never touch land Mm -hmm. is explained by production designer Patrice Vermette, stating, The 12 identical ships would travel across the universe and end the journey by hovering 28 feet above ground in delicate equilibrium, 
leaving it to Earth's people to make the final outreach to contact them. Gosh, I like that. That's a piece of characterization mm. just in the visuals. Because in a lot of ways, the heptopods are almost quite passive in their, their form of communication. They expect you yeah, to yeah. come in. and They are encouraging humankind to mm. actually start the conversation. I just love that. So Montana is also the site of first contact between humans and aliens in the Star Trek lore as first revealed in Star Trek First Contact in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zephram Cochran <laughs> does his first warp yep. flight on the Phoenix with Commander Riker and, uh, and yep. Troy LaForge. They sort of do it, and then there's Vulcans flying by. They pop down, and then they say hello. And then first contact yeah, is established. <laughs> I just love the idea that the Vulcans come down and just like, so, see so you cracked it then. <laughs> Because these are obviously the northern Vulcans. Northern you know Vulcans, what I mean? yeah, naturally, you know. Yeah, of course. Live long and prosper, isn't it? Live long and prosper and have a cup of tea. Infinite diversity <laughs> and infinite combinations. That's healthy. <laughs> so, the heptapod's craft owes its design to an asteroid called 15 Eunomia. That's it. Okay. I couldn't pronounce that correctly. Sure. Uh, during research, director Denis Villeneuve became attracted to Eunomia's insane shape like a strange egg and thought that kind of pebble or oval shape would bring a sense of menace and mystery to the spacecraft. The original draft of the script did not have anything specifically written for the final part of exchange between General Shang and Louise. Before filming, director Denis Villeneuve he asked the screenwriter to write a line that would save the world for the final part of the exchange, spoken in Mandarin. Heisera said he spent weeks perfecting the line between Louise and General Shang, only to find that Villeneuve removed the subtitles for the scene in the final cut. <laughs> the unsubtitled line was, In war, there are no winners, only widows. That's really it's a pretty good, good line. Yeah. I'll never write anything like and that. And I like a ever. good bit of alliteration as well. When Louise's daughter questions the reason for her name, Hannah, mm -hmm. Louise explains that her name's a palindrome. That is, it's spelled the same forwards as it is backwards. Yeah. This reflects the theme of the film in the, that the story starts as it finishes due to the story's events existing in non-linear time. The violin melody in the last sequence is also palindromic. Oh, really? Yes. That's awesome. Jeremy Renner's surname is also a palindrome. Good oh. old Renner. One thing, did you know that the, the written language of the heptopods is referred to as heptopod B? Heptopod A is their spoken language, which is just... Yes. Oh. <laughs> 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 it's, it's more akin to like whale songs. Yeah. It's like yeah. You know, an actual spoken that's, language. That's, that's spot on. Thank you, Phil. Those were really fascinating. I particularly like any kind of Star Trek reference we can fit in. I knew you'd love that. I wish, <laughs> I wish it ended with it. I really do. <laughs> now, uh, we'll move on to today's guest. Jenny Thomas is a retired professor of linguistics in Bangor University. And she spoke to me earlier today about some of the more linguistic elements of the film. Let's have a listen. I'm Jenny Thomas and I am retired professor of linguistics from the University of Bangor, North Wales. Thank you, Professor Thomas. So you've seen the film. It's predominantly about how linguistics, linguists rather, approach a different culture. So how would modern linguists approach making contact with a culture they have never encountered before? asking myself because actually there are very few completely unknown languages so if you want to learn to communicate with a completely unknown culture it would be working in an area called field linguistics and the people who best developed field linguistics 
were a group called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. They were really missionaries, so they were trying to extend the Christian gospel to tribes which hadn't been evangelized previously, so that forced people to learn a completely different language. I never thought about a connection between linguistics and evangelism before. Well, that was sort of where field linguistics started, and the way they would approach it would be first to contact neighbouring tribes, perhaps, whose language was better described, when that is not possible. When a language is what we call an isolate, doesn't bear any relationship to a neighbouring language. Mm-hmm. And again, there are a few of those, say Basque would be one, Georgian would be another. In the film, obviously, there are neighbouring languages and we have no quick way in. You would actually start the way is described in the film. You would start trying to get single words so that that might give you an insight into what sort of phonetic there is, what sort of sound system there is. The Summer Institute of Linguistics had a good list which has since been updated many times. So it might start with parts of the body or natural environment like leaf or flower or dog or whatever and then it would would show you two cats or two dogs so that we start to understand the structure of the language single but again that doesn't apply to our film what did you think of the methodology used in arrival i can't think how i would do it better (laughs) that's gonna Um, that's gonna be a good a good seal of approval then if you're watching it going oh that's interesting rather than going well hmm. of course that's not how you do it at all and of course a lot of the film hinges on a different understanding of tool and weapon and the way in a given language a concept might apply differently and the one that we standardly discuss in linguistics would be the color spectrum the way we name color varies enormously from culture to culture I mean some languages only some cultures would only have two distinctions others would make roughly seven or eight as in the color spectrum yeah i remember when i was learning russian i really struggled because they have two words for blue so sydney and golubboy are the two words and to me it's light blue and dark blue so it's one color divided into two yeah but russian speakers slavonic speakers see them as quite different colours as you and I would green Mm. or yellow. I mean that's a very very basic observation but it it shows that to a degree my mother tongue influenced Mm. the way I could see that colour. That leads on quite nicely to to Sapir-Whorf theory doesn't it? It does indeed. How would you best describe that? In its very extreme form it would say that the language you have determine your perception and sort of categorize your experience so the different language speakers would perceive the world differently that's what it says but recently we would soften it a great deal saying not that it determines the way you see the world but it does constrain the world the way you see the world so your first stab would be blue and some of it's light and some of it's dark sufficient exposure to a different culture would help you to actually see those distinctions that we might not make 
the film is a fairly extreme version of the Sapir Wharf theory brought to life then, isn't it? Yeah, but the weaker form actually wins out because the heroine is able to make other people, other cultures, see that what for us is is a hard and fast distinction between weapon and tool mm. actually is much more more fluid thing. And exposure to this radically different culture, you know, leads very different Earth cultures mm-hmm. to change their minds. Professor Thomas, thank you so much. We really appreciate you talking to us and I love talking about linguistics. <laughs> I'm glad you've learned to love it. <laughs> <laughs> That was Professor Jenny Thomas. Phil, what did you think? The bit that got me was the um, using the colour spectrum to find mm. sort of similarities in different, you know, linguistic patterns and different languages. I thought I, I would never have thought that that would be a starting point, but it it really makes sense after she explained it as well. It's interesting you mentioned that because obviously in the ancient world, there's the idea that certain colours just didn't exist, you know, and that um, Homer talks about the, the wine dark sea. Another yeah. fun one is um, is violets. You look at any picture of a violet and that's clearly purple. And yet yeah. every rhyme tells us roses are red, violets are blue. The amount of times I've heard that rhyme and I've never questioned it. Now, let's get on to finding the faith in the film. What's interested me about this film wasn't finding specific biblical parallels. I did think about how Louise starts a relationship knowing that she will one day be parted from her husband, and she has a child knowing that one day her child is going to die, which seems profound until you realise that everybody makes those choices, and it's really just a matter of timescale. Like, Mm -hmm. you will be parted from your significant other at some point, because unfortunately everyone dies. You can't have uh, love without loss. The two things are intrinsically linked. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I wanted to focus on how the film is preoccupied with topics that Christianity is also fascinated with. I just want to point out that I'm not an expert. If I make any mistakes or get anything fundamentally wrong about theology or quantum mechanics, I sincerely apologise and we can talk about it in the comments. I'm sure people will forgive you. (laughs) So, considering this is a story about time travel, I thought starting at the end seemed a totally appropriate way to do it. Louise Banks manages to avoid military escalation by ringing General Shang and convincing him to stand down based on a memory she has from the future. The memory is of meeting General Shang, where he tells her exactly what she said to him on the phone call that they're having in that moment. Now, this is an example of a bootstrap paradox. Have you ever heard of those? I I don't really know what that is either. So, the term bootstrap paradox is derived from the expression to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, which indicates performing an impossible or a ludicrous task. I mean, in this instance, it means pulling yourself over a fence by holding onto your bootlaces and tugging <laughs> upwards. The first reference to such an absurd, impossible action is believed to come from an 18th century story, The Surprising Adventures of Baron Munchausen, in which the hero is stuck in a swamp and manages to escape by pulling upwards on his own hair. <laughs> it's really interesting, this, because that phrase, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, is a phrase that we're used to with the idea of talking about a self-made man. And it's quite nice that this just points out that that idea was ridiculous right from the start. So a bootstrap paradox just means something that is completely impossible. In terms of sci-fi, a good example of the paradox would be if a time traveller went back in time and taught Einstein the theory of relativity, 
before returning to his own time. Einstein claims it as his own work, and over the following decades, the theory is published countless times until a copy of it eventually ends up in the hands of the original time traveller, who then takes it back to Einstein, begging the question, where did the theory originate? We can't Mm. say that it came from the time traveller, as he learned it from Einstein. But we also can't say that it's from Einstein, since he was taught it by the time traveller, who then discovered the theory of relativity. So in the same way, we have to ask, where did Louise's message come from? That is fascinating. Like, like yeah. you just... It, it's kind of like Martin McFly being his own dad. That's called the, the grandfather paradox. And that's a specific yes. example of a, of a bootstrap paradox. Another favourite one of mine comes from Flight of the Concords. They say in one of their stand-up sets, yeah, we, uh, we actually went back in time to the 60s and met David Bowie. We gave him the David Bowie songbook and said, uh, here, this should make things a lot easier. I like that. What's fascinating is the way that God himself is also essentially a paradox. So questions like, if God made everything who made God. The interesting thing is Christians are surprisingly chill about paradoxes. Nobody is really that fussed about these things. It's it's a big reason why I am an atheist, because yeah. there are so many things in the Bible which, to me, who I am mostly logic in my yeah. soul, I just can't sort of reconcile the paradoxical ideas that are present yeah. in the Bible. Like, like especially with like God being, he can make anything. Can he make yeah. a rock that's heavier than himself? That the, that kind of thing, or heavier than he yeah. can lift. Rather, and it's those it's totally things valid because so. from a from a rational perspective, it's a circle you can't square. So I can totally understand that. Mm. The Trinity that we discussed is a paradox, the the three in one sort of thing. But there is one particular paradox that's been bugging Christians for at least five hundred years. John Calvin was a French theologian, and he broke from the Catholic Church around fifteen thirty, and was a key figure in developing developing a school of theology that bears his name. Now, you can find the five principles of Calvinism on the internet. There's a handy acronym, uh, TULIP, that describes it. But we're going to focus on the most controversial element, which is the idea of limited atonement. So in broad strokes, Calvinism is based on the idea that individuals do not have a choice in who obtains salvation because it's predestined. No one has the ability to change that. This is one of the concepts that I can see where they're coming from, but I still hate every single bit of it. Yeah, no. When I was reading about Calvinism myself, first thing that came to my head was just, this is cruel to people who are of a faithful mind and have prescribed themselves to this life of of God, this this, this lifestyle. And basically just kicks them in the head. So if we accept that God is infinite and non-linear, then we have to accept that God knows who accepts Jesus and who doesn't at the end of human history. Then if we accept the idea that God is the author of creation and he has a hand in creating every living thing, then it leads to the idea that God created people who he knew wasn't going to accept him. And if that's the case, then that means the concept of free will doesn't exist. The problem then becomes that if free will doesn't exist, then the entirety of human existence is a thoroughly pointless exercise. From Adam and Eve all the way down to what I did today, free will is an essential part of both a relationship with God and human society functioning. And if there's no such thing as free will, then frankly, I don't see why I should have to put pants on or do anything other than slob out on the sofa and watch Deep Space Nine because if I don't have free will, then I also (laughs) don't have any responsibility or control over what I do. You may as well just spend all day just no pants on, no clothes at all because what's the point? It's all predetermined anyway, you know? So I spent about three hours researching this on Monday and at the end I was no clearer and my brain was dribbling out my ears i found theologians online who devoted their entire working lives to this but 
from what I could see, their brains were dribbling out their ears too. So, like many other Christians, I have to engage in a bit of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is the practice of holding two opposing ideas in your head at the same time. In this case, I know that God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and at the same time, I have to believe that I have free will and that it is important. In John 6, verses 66-68, in the New Century Version, it says this, After Jesus said this, many of his followers left him and stopped following him. Jesus asked the twelve followers, Do you want to leave too? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, who would we go to? You have the words that give eternal life. Even there, we get a quick example of Jesus actually giving somebody a choice. And if you look at what he does throughout the gospel, he's often saying, if you do this, you'll get eternal life. It's not saying you have to, or you will, or you definitely won't. The choice is yours. So in short, I asked my friend about this problem. My friend John Stammers summed it up like this. The way I basically look at it is that predestination and free will are definitely both true and have to be held in tension. But predestination is basically God's business and free will is our business. As far as any of us see, we are free and God will never force us against our will. Yeah, I quite like that. I think that's quite a succinct way of putting it. The other thing is, is that if God knows this information and we will never have access to that information, then it's no use to us. So I prefer to think of it as the difference that makes no difference is no difference. If I think I have free will, if I act like I've got free will, then I've got free will and so does everybody else. So that's how I'm going to approach it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important as well to mm-hmm. make sure that you are shoring yourself about free will because yeah. it's not healthy for us as human beings to feel as though everything is completely predestined, predetermined. Yeah, exactly. So this is one of the less appealing aspects of Christianity. But if you think about it, every ideology has something to it that doesn't appeal in some way or other. If you if you take at least one interpretation of atheism, if you said well, I could go to the shops today, but I'm not sure if there's any point because the entirety of human existence is arbitrary. And no matter what I do, it's still going to result in the inevitable heat death of the universe. So I don't know. Have you been listening to what I say when I walk to the shop? Because <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I think. I'm just like, you know, like, yeah. what's the point? There's, this is why some people take pills, you know, like some people yeah. need that. There is no belief system that doesn't have a side to it that is less appealing. The next point I wanted to get to is that one of the most difficult things about being a Christian is you're essentially trying to have a relationship with a non-linear being. That's one of the strangest sentences I've ever heard. And again, it's one of those things that's obvious, but nobody really talks about it. Essentially, the entire high concept of arrival is dealing with a race so alien that even their concept of time is different to ours. Louise Banks has to try and understand the written language of an alien race that doesn't have an understanding of non-linear time. Now, as a result of her learning their language, Louise starts to see visions of her own future. Interestingly, there are multiple examples of people in the Old Testament being granted visions of the future. Hmm. And the thing is, they make perfect sense, so long as you know what you're looking for. Yeah, Uh, like, you need a cheat sheet. So in uh, Micah, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, it states, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, this can be fairly easily interpreted as a prophecy that the Messiah 
would be born in Bethlehem. Yes. Which is pretty impressive, considering that Micah was writing between 737 to 696 BC. That's quite a lot of years before Christ. It is, isn't it just? <laughs> yes. However, when we start looking at the book of Revelation, which is mostly prophecy about the end times, it gets much trickier to work out what is going on if it hasn't actually happened yet. If I give you an example of Revelations 13, verse 1 to 3, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his ten ho- upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name Blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power, and his seat and great authority. What kind of creature is it? Is it a dragon? What? Is it a bear? What on earth like, is that about? Why does it have ten horns? And why does I, every horn need a crown? That I do is, not know. If nothing else, if nothing else, it's not economical. Mm. Think of all the it metal not, that went into making those crowns. For what? It, it's just, you know? it is not economical. I think we can all agree on that it's one. Just, that's just what on earth is this person saying? Now, is that the writer, John, giving coded messages to other early believers about the evils of the Roman Empire? Or is that something entirely different that hasn't happened yet? I don't know. And to be honest, I don't think I want to find out because you end up going round in circles. So... This particular branch of theology concerning end-of-days prophecies is called eschatology. And like Professor Field said about the Holy Grail, it can be a lot of fun, but it's hard to know anything for sure. One of the classic examples is, is the Antichrist. Who would you say is a very popular leader who might in fact be totally evil? What would be the first name that would come to mind for you? Donald Trump. Yeah. Most people may well think of Donald Trump. However, some people of a very different political bent would say that would have said that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. Going yeah. further back, Adolf Hitler could have been a good contender for me, the Antichrist. Going further back beyond that, early Protestants could have described the Pope as the Antichrist. And then when you go further back beyond that, early Christians would have seen the Caesars as the Antichrist. So really, when you say that someone is the Antichrist, what that really is doing is just saying more about you than it is about them. The coming of the Antichrist is the coming of the end times, if I remember correctly. Yeah. The key thing with the end times is we don't know when it's happening. You know, it could be it could be tomorrow. It could be 3,000 years from now. I say I hope it's the latter because I've got stuff on, to be honest. I've got stuff on too. You know what I mean? Right? I've got a chili in the slow cooker currently and I plan on eating some of it. The last thing I wanted to talk about was issues surrounding translation. Right at the start of the film, Banks secures the job by showing how a competitor mixes up the Sanskrit word for war with a desire to have more cows. Now, <laughs> I forgot about that bit, but I really liked it. Later on, as we approach the climax of the film, Louise translates the heptopod's writing as off a weapon. But she also points out, we don't know if they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. And she suggests that it could mean use tool. This made me think about how we're sometimes at the mercy of translators. Yeah. We often forget that the Bible wasn't written in English. And so we can often end up adding cultural associations to words or phrases that were never intended and missing cultural connotations that would be obvious to first century writers of the New Testament. I found a blog by the writer Stant Latour that I thought illustrated this really well. So Latour says... The camel and the needle is one of my favourite examples of translation shenanigans and is all the more delightful because no matter which way you translate or mistranslate it, the message of the metaphor remains roughly the same. For those not in the know, here's what happened. 
very probably, the rabbi Yeshua, Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus, okay. told his followers 2,000 years ago that it was easier to thread a rope, like the big ropes used on fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee, through the eye of a sewing needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But in Aramaic, the language he was speaking and the language in which the source text for the Synoptic Gospels was probably written, camel and rope are spelled the same, G-M-L. They do sound different, but written Aramaic doesn't often represent vowels. So someone dutifully recorded G-M-L. Now, this gets even funnier when the Synoptic Gospels come along and people are translating the words of Christ into coin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Because in coin Greek, camel and rope are also the same word, distinguished in text by a single vowel, but pronounced almost identical. Camel is camelon, and rope is camelon. Now, in Latin and in English, of course, camel and rope are really easy to tell apart. But in both Aramaic and Greek, they're not. So while it is frustrating enough to try jamming a knotted fishing rope through the eye of a sewing needle, we're now left with the image of a massive dromedary squeezing through a needle, hump and all. And... The rich are not only in a proper mess, but comically so, for the want of a vowel. A poor camel? Just, just thinking, like, I don't know what I did to deserve this, we, lads, I, but here we, we are. We don't advise it, ladies and gents, we do not advise <laughs> it. It's an amusing case because the meaning comes out similar in either case, and camel fits mm. Jesus' teaching style, which often made humorous use of hyperbole. Other mistranslations are more sinister, like the popular translation of asenokritis. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I mean, it's ancient Greek or Aramaic, so... There'll be someone out there yeah. that can tell you. Arsenokoites is often translated as homosexuals, okay. which is a stretch, as there is a separate Greek word for that. Arsenokoit is a compound of man and bed, and no one knows what the word means because its usage is so rare, and it appears only in lists without context. It's been suggested that it's a reference to gigolos, but that's an equally unsupported guess. In one case, the word occurs next to malakoi, uh, the luxurious. The traditional interpretation that malakoi and arsenokoitis are paired labels for submissive and dominant partners in sex acts remains guesswork, and other interpretations are just as, or more, plausible. For example, malakoi, arsenokoitis, translates as soft ones, man beds, and it could easily be a colourful reference to pleasure-loving rich men who will loll about on bed eating grapes all day and ignore the suffering of impoverished neighbours. That's the type of vice that the New Testament lectures on frequently and at length, to which the letters in which these words appear devote considerable attention. Rich, luxurious, gaudy living was also a vice that the Greeks and Romans alike tended to scorn and treat with mockery. They would have found Trump Tower hilarious. <laughs> Reading Malakoi Arsenokoites in this fashion is conjecture, but so is every other proposed reading of Malakoi Arsenokoites. That really is astonishing. Like the, For me, it feels as though it's most likely referring to a life of vice, luxury, that kind yeah. of thing. I can see how it gets mistranslated. Like you said, Romans, Greeks, they, they mm. had like giant eating parties and things like that. Yeah. And... So I spoke to my friend Joe Swanson Fallowell, who's a, a freelance translator, and he had this to say on the subject. There are always going to be nuances that are lost or that are difficult to convey 
in another language. This situation is obviously exacerbated the more languages a text passes through. Another key point is one of what translators call localization, i.e. reworking a default English translation to suit different locations, such as Americanizing spellings or, in this instance, time periods. This therefore requires the editors to interpret centuries-old English. As an English teacher, you'll know what that can be like with Shakespeare, never mind a text that actually has an impact on the way people live their lives. And that is presuming that the editor is competent at interpreting older varieties of English. The last point that Joe makes is, is this. When translating, every translator has a choice to make about how to translate any given text. The choice can be simple, such as the choice between, for example, two basically identical synonyms. However, there is a larger choice to be considered, which is the translator's visibility. An invisible translator works hard to minimise the impact that they have had on the text and render as close as possible the source meaning. The other choice is for the translator to be visible and to allow, either consciously or subconsciously, their own prejudices and worldview to influence the way they translate a text. This in particular could have a huge impact on a text as important as the Bible, as an unscrupulous translator could see it as their opportunity to influence millions of people with lasting effects on people's lives. I found that absolutely fascinating. It almost bridges the gap between like the scientific nature of translation and linguistics, but also it brings in that sort of that human creative sort of element there as well like i want to leave my mark on this particular translation and yeah it, it's, i had it's, never even heard about about visibility within translation but it is yeah no that, that is that is absolutely new to me but you know what it, it really feels almost natural yeah. like and it makes complete sense because as human beings like you have people who like scientists who want to write certain papers they want to have their their paper published and they want to have mm -hmm. their name out there and they want the recognition and the respect that that comes with as well if it's successful and if it's popular or if it's a big discovery or something like that and yeah. it makes sense that it comes up in linguistics specifically in translation as well what's really interesting is if you've got that visibility i think you also need to have that transparency if you think about middle english texts like beowulf one of the most famous translations is by the poet seamus heaney as long as we know that this is seamus's interpretation of it that's absolutely fine because there's a plurality there. We know that if there's that this is one interpretation and that there are other interpretations out there. That concludes our Finding the Faith in the Film section. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Listen, I've had a, a great time talking about this. If you've managed to make it all the way through to this at the end of this episode, well done, because we covered some pretty weighty topics. Although i got to say, every time we do one of these podcasts, I always really feel quite enriched by it. It's a fresh perspective on something that I already enjoyed. I'm so glad about that. I really enjoyed myself as well. Listeners, we really hope you enjoy yourself. Until our next episode is going to be on Dogma, so tune in for that one. Yeah. And until then... You guys have a fantastic week. Stay home, stay safe, and we love you all. See you very soon, and thank you so much for listening. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact-checking by Christina Stanard-Good. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Tech support from Claire Goff, and heresy editing by Nick Matthews. Gordon Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case, just tell Phil through an elaborate use of trained dolphins. <laughs>